0: For
1: this country, we're walking on We stand together to protect this land
0: For the future, we're hand in hand
1: Warning, the following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature
2: and nuts The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed, officious, dictatorial wowsers If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life
1: that's right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's time for another episode of the Environmental as Anything podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Sean O'Shaughnessy. Environmental as Anything is produced on the stolen lands of the Bungelung nation. And so it is with humility that uh, I express my... Gratitude to the Widgeable, Wiable people for their hospitality and my deep regret for the terrible depredations of colonialism and capitalism. My respects to Elders, past, present and emerging, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Got a huge show lined up for you again this week. Got to start the show with some good news for forests with the Forest Pledge being launched in federal parliament by independent member for McKellar, Sophie Scomps. A small but significant uh, win for justice for Forests through our legal system by forest protector Susie Russell in the Tari local court. Also good news from the front lines of the resistance to the climate emergency as the school strike for climate returns to form again at last after the clampdown over COVID. And uh, we have reports from the, those front lines in Sydney, Melbourne and Byron Bay. Big news, of course, for justice for our climate as the Australian climate case goes ahead in Nam, uh, Melbourne. And we have uh, Isabel Reinecke from the Grata Fund, who is supporting the traditional owners of the Torres Straits in their case for an end to the federal government's negligence and a responsible exertion of its duty of care for all Australians. And after that, uh, on international news, uh, Dr Tamara Wood from the Kaldor Centre for International Refugee Law will be talking us through the implications of the Australian government's signing of a climate refugee treaty with our Pacific neighbour Tuvalu. And then as part of our ongoing commitment to trying to find positive actions for us all to be able to take to address the problems of the world we live in, we'll be speaking to none other than Violet Coco with the Coco report from the front lines. On Monday, 13th of November, 2023, in a speech to the Australian Parliament, Dr. Sophie Scomps, the independent member for McKellar, launched what she is calling the Forest Pledge, which aims to end native forest logging nationwide.
3: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Today I launched the Forest Pledge. So the Forest Pledge is a a promise by signatories to do what they can to help end native logging in this country. And when I talk about native logging, I'm talking about industrial-scale native logging of our public native forests. We're in the middle of an extinction crisis, an environmental crisis and a climate crisis. Australia leads the world when it comes to mammal extinctions. We are responsible for 35 per cent of all mammal extinctions in the modern era. We also heard with the State of the Environment report, which was released last year, it made for harrowing reading. We have 19 ecosystems on the brink of failure. And then we have the climate crisis. This year has been the hottest year on record and we now know that being net zero by 2050 is probably not going to be near enough. We need to act and we need to act now. In this context, continuing to log our beautiful native forests is simply madness and morally wrong. The Native Forest Logging Pledge was supported by thirty-six environmental and civil organisations, including WWF, the Climate Council, the Public Health Association and Blueprint Institute. It was also supported by twenty nine scientists, experts and academics. And importantly, it was supported by former uh, politicians, senior politicians such as Bob Devis, Jeff Gallup
1: and others. The Guardian Australia reports that the End Native Forest Logging Pledge is being supported by a wide-ranging bipartisan group of former federal and state environment ministers. It's reported that former ministers backing the pledge include Robert Hill, who served under John Howard; Peter Garrett, who served under Kevin Rudd; and the former New South Wales Labor Environment Minister Bob Debus, as well as Rod Welford and Desley Boyle, two former Queensland Environment Ministers. Jeff. Gallup, former West Australian Premier and all federal teal independents, Senator David Pocock, key independent MPs in the New South Wales Parliament, most state and federal Greens politicians and more than 30 environment and civil society groups are also backing the pledge. In more good news for forests, North Coast Environment Council secretary and staunch campaigner for the Save Bulga Forest movement, Susie Russell, received justice for forests through our legal system as the magistrate threw out all charges against her for being present at a peaceful protest in the Bulga Forest almost a year ago. Susie Russell, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Pleasure. I understand you've just had a bit of a win for justice for our forests in the in our legal system.
4: That's right. I was charged in uh, January for uh, entering into a, a closed forest when we were in the height of the Save Bulga Forest protests. I think you yourself might have been there.
1: I was there covering and, that event.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the the wheels of justice grind slowly, but I had um, approached the police several times and said, "Look, this is a ridiculous offence. You know, I really did nothing wrong. I wasn't stopping the logging. Uh, but no, they were determined to proceed with a case against me. In one of the uh, officers' evidence, they actually said that I was identified as a um, a main voice of the anti-logging protests. So it's pretty clear to me that uh, it was really about singla- signal, <laughs> singling me out mm. um, to try and um, keep me out of the forest, which uh, they did initially because of the bail conditions that uh, I was given. Anyway, it's been a long
0: process
4: of, um, of various uh, pleadings and appeals, but today... Uh, we kind of went back to square one. I pleaded not guilty um, to the offence as it is uh, stated in the Act mm. and uh, in the Forestry Regulation. And um, the magistrate decided that the police had not made out a prima facie case uh, against me. That um, that the key elements of the offence weren't proven. And um, and uh, said I could go with no uh, no conviction. Charges dropped. So I think that was uh, it was really good, obviously for me. It was uh, great for the safe Bulga Forest crew because uh, we've been gathering outside courthouses now all year uh, to support those of us who were charged during that period. And it was also good for people to see that uh, under some circumstances, um, representing yourself is a is an okay option. It's an okay thing to do, and how and how important it is to um, often to plead not guilty because sometimes we just assume um, we kind of assume the guilt, and I know I did that initially, but um, but I think today showed that um, that when it came down to it, the police didn't have the evidence.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like a punitive uh, arrest and charge. You know, you, you've said you had no intention to be arrested. You hadn't interfered with the logging operation. Uh, you haven't caused any uh, problems for the police, uh, but they they grabbed you because they'd 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 identified you. They'd profiled you.
4: That's right. I mean, they. Uh, I think it was a case of where. Um, They had been called out um, before Christmas to a couple of of, uh, protests in Bulger Forest uh, where where I had been present. They'd uh, tried to, um, I suppose, intimidate me from going to the police by bringing a forestry corporation map to my house to tell me that um, the, the boundaries of the prohibited area had changed and I wasn't allowed to go inside that area. And then they pretty much pri- tried to tell me that by turning up to the forest, uh, you know, I was in breach. Mm. But um, but that that's not what the offence is. You know, the offence is very clear that you, it's up to the Forestry Corporation to have um, notices displayed at the boundary of the forest. And they didn't.
1: No, well, they certainly didn't. I can attest to that. But there was. Um, it seems that uh, forestry are in trouble across the board. It sounds like the uh, the EPA are, are upset with them for uh, their failure to do proper harvesting uh, planning regarding the uh, yellow-bellied gliders. Oh no, sorry, it's the greater gliders. The, yeah. Sorry, the greater yeah, gliders I mean, in, in your area.
4: Well, not just our area, up and down the coast, and I mean this. This was really triggered by the discovery of a dead greater glider, um, now a a nationally endangered species. Um, Their population has collapsed by more than 80% in the last 20 years, so they really are on the edge. And this amazingly beautiful furry little critter um, uses tree hollows to shelter during the day and where they obviously they raise their young and they only come out at night. Uh, to feed on eucalypt leaves. They're a bit like a koala in that sense. So forestry have been told they have to protect the homes of the greater gliders. Uh, So what they do is they walk through the forest during the day and then go, oh, didn't see any, nothing to protect. When, of course they didn't see any. They don't come out until nighttime. So we've been going out at night, um, as have our colleagues on the south coast and surveying and finding that there are some forests, Bulga is one, talaganda is another, that are strongholds for the greater glider and absolutely crucial that these forests get protected into the future. Uh, and um, But, of course, when forestry went to look, they didn't find any gliders, they didn't find any of their den trees And uh, so they think they can just go ahead and log. Well, fortunately, EPA seem to have finally called an end to that particular farce Mm. and are now saying that uh, forestry need to identify the glider den trees. If there are greater gliders present, they need to know which trees they're using. Now, it's still not good enough because uh, gliders are smart and they don't use the same hollow every night because if they did, uh, the owl would be sitting outside the door waiting. Mm. Uh, So they move around. They go from one hollow to the next and they use up to 20 um, tree hollows. So uh, just because forestry identifies one tree hollow doesn't mean that that's the only tree that the glider uses. So... The crazy thing is that it's now more than 20 years since the loss of hollow-bearing trees, that is, trees that are old enough to have hollows that are big enough for gliders. um, The loss of those trees has been recognised scientifically by the New South Wales Scientific Committee as what's called a a key-threatening process. That is, that this is something that is threatening the future of our unique fauna, not just gliders, but all the animals that depend on tree hollows. And I think in northeast New South Wales, it's something like 174 species of animals use tree hollows. I mean, there are reptiles, bats, there are even some frogs, so many birds, uh, and of course the gliders and possums and fasca gales and all sorts of creatures use tree hollows. Um, and... So, I mean, trees with hollows should just be off limits. That's, that's the end. That should have happened 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and, of course, they are a diminishing feature of our forest because they can take a couple of hundred years to be old enough to form those kind of hollows. So, even if we protect them um, now, what's left, if we don't protect the next size up uh, and some of the next size up after that, then... Uh, In a few decades and with another fire or two, we won't have any of those old trees with hollows. So it just goes to underline how unsustainable the logging industry is because it is constantly eroding these key habitat features that these animals need to survive.
1: Yes, and it seems that um, that the, the underlining that unsustainability of the uh, the practice is is a range of court actions and administrative actions ar- around Australia, uh, with, with uh, native forest logging being called to a halt in Victoria and WA, and uh, and and now. The, uh, the Forest Pledge being launched federally by uh, Sophie Scomps in the federal parliament yesterday. Uh, what, what was your response to that?
4: Well, I just think it's fantastic. Uh, we've now seen a, um, dozens of politicians at, you know, state and federal level from um, particularly the independents, the teals, the greens, a former Liberal Environment Minister, a former Labor Environment Minister, all coming out saying it is absolutely past time now to protect our forests. Like, everybody knows that time is up. So let's just get on with it sooner rather than later and try and stop the damage because we are going to have to foot the repair bill. Mm. And the sooner we stop the damage, the, you know, the less the repair bill will be. So... I think it's great that this is getting some mileage in the federal parliament and um another piece of exciting news is that the legal action that the Northeast Forest Alliance took um in March last year so 2022 um we've been told to expect a judgment before the end of the year so it's been a long time coming this judgment yes uh, and there's a lot riding on it because what we have claimed in court is that uh, much of the logging that is happening under the so-called regional forest agreements is actually illegal, um, that uh, that the regional forest agreements did not consider climate change. They didn't consider threatened species. They didn't adequately consider what was happening with old-growth forests, and as such, they should never have been extended for a further 20 years um or indefinitely as the way the way they sort of work um so I mean that will, obviously, if the court finds against us, we will be bitterly disappointed and uh, you know we'll have to look at our options for appeal, which will um, be expensive and meanwhile the forests will fall. But if we win, uh, and I am a bit optimistic because I just can't understand how anyone could mm. think that, uh, you know, logging indefinitely without considering things like threatened species and climate change uh, could possibly be valid. Um, if we win, then that puts on notice uh, logging certainly right across northeast New South Wales, but um, the other regions uh, in southern New South Wales would be in a similar situation um, and that provides an opportunity for both the state and the federal governments to say, "Okay, time's up. Uh, rather than go to court and have an appeal and etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, we're we're going to actually accept that this is the you know this is the new uh, the new reality, and we will, uh, and that those governments will then start to take action to see our native forest protected, long overdue."
1: It sounds like uh, that could be our potential end game. The stars may be lining up for our forests at last.
4: Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so.
1: What do you think it will take for that to push that across the line at this point? what should you were you calling for people to do to to make that uh, reality?
4: Well, obviously first uh, I, I mean the legal um, uh Legal things need to line up. But pe- we people need to keep, um, we need to get out there into the forest where you can. Uh, join up with a local group that is looking for uh, koalas or going at it in the night and uh, looking for greater gliders. There's lots of citizen science happening now, um, you know, to try and find where these animals are and, and to argue for their habitat. So people can get involved. If you can't do that, write to the Premier. I mean, he's on record now as saying, well, if we had a carbon market, we could stop the logging. Well, I think we need to say carbon market or no carbon market, the logging is wrong and has to stop. And he needs to feel and to know that there is support for that position. So um, those letters to him, to Penny Sharp, the Environment Minister, Tara Moriarty, the the state forestry minister, to the prime minister, to the federal uh, environment minister, Tanya Plibersek, and um, Murray Watt, the federal forestry minister, they don't go astray. They're just all... What those letters do is show that people care enough to actually take the time to write a letter, Mm -hmm. and they build up. If enough people do it, they get the message, so uh that there's are certainly things that people could do raise money donate money i mean we certainly need money for uh our legal bills um if we if we win and we have to take a series of court actions to try and enforce the court ruling it will be expensive um so yeah if if, if you want to do a fundraiser um get in touch and uh I mean, I think I think they're the key things. Just keep everyone just does their bit. Share the posts on social media, you know. Do the tweets, whatever, whatever you think you can do. It every every little bit helps. All
1: right. Well, I'm sure that uh, everybody listening will be uh, we doing everything that they can to uh, to to get onto all of those uh, those actions. And uh, Susie, thank you for your decades of tireless work and uh, for facing down the uh, the legal system and, and, and getting a, a small a small win for the forest today.
4: Yep, thank you, Sean. Uh, I certainly hope I don't have to do it again in a hurry, but if I need to, to, um, to stop the, the madness and the destruction, then I will.
1: That was North Coast Environment Council Secretary Susie Russell on some much-needed good news for forests in our parliament and in our legal system. Stay tuned to environmental as anything. We've got plenty more to come. Hashtag shift the power was the rallying call for the thousands of Australian school and people concerned with climate emergency who marched across eight cities to protest yesterday. Organisers of School Strike for Climate say their rally in Canberra was cancelled, but in Melbourne, The Wire's contributor Monique Gruvek from First Nations Media Australia caught up with a First Nations woman who was part of the march there.
0: My name is Chelsea Aniba. I am a Diba woman from the Kaibu'ai, seven clans of Saibai Island in the Torres Strait. And what, what, what are you doing here today? So I'm here um, invited to speak uh, at Parliament, introducing the um, Bill for Duty of Care with the youths. So um, I've just been in Canberra, a panellist, invited panellist to speak there, and um, also just got invited here and, with the strike today and looking very forward to today and and it's all about climate change and saving the country, saving the land saving our people especially with climate change for the future Um, What would you like to say to the country? Well there's a lot of things I can say but how can you narrow it down to like a couple of seconds How can we uh, know and go to sleep at night if we know about what's going to happen in the future but we're not doing it the government's not doing anything so the only thing that we can do is support the youth because they are the ones that are going to be living tomorrow i can't speak for other people's country but i can speak for my country of Saibai is that um we need to as elders and elders could be i'm not, I'm not um saying that i'm old but i am you know i'm a mother of truth. is to keep teaching the generation the children about our culture our songs our stories about our lands and our sea because that is what our identity that is our heritage and if climate change is changing that then we're going to be singing songs to our next generation they're going to be singing the song that's telling the stories to their generation but where is the land and the sea at that time in in those years they're going to be looking back and saying oh this song is about that place it's about that country but they can't identify that song with the country because of climate change it's just come inundation erosion changing over time Where is the song without the country? There is no song It'll it'll get to that point where they're going to be, the next generations are just going to be looking at pictures and hearing about the stories and trying to imagine what it used to look like sit and, and trying to imagine the sounds of the birds there used to be birds here, they used to migrate here but not here at that time there used to be turtle and dugong during this season but no more now you know, things like that and it's sad, it makes me sad.
2: What do we want? What do we want? What do we want?
1: You're listening to the school strike for climate rally in March from Belmore Park to Tanya Plibersek's office in Sydney yesterday. The students and their supporters across Australia are demanding for the government to shift the power away from fossil fuels and end all approvals and subsidies of new fossil fuel projects.
5: Hello, I am a student from Pimble Ladies College and I'm here today to show everyone to care about the climate change because it's everyone's problem and we all have to do something about it. My name is Ethan, I'm a proud graduate activist and a school striker. Um, I was organizing a school strike for four years, but now that I'm a graduate striker. I'm here supporting the students. Um, I really believe in First Nations justice uh, to be achieved, to then achieve climate justice. I think they're both interlinked. Our movement has a rich history and genesis in uh, First Nations liberation, so I'm out here today. I'm uh, Let everyone know that First Nations justice is at the centre, uh, we need First Nations-led solutions to the climate crisis, and it's good to see all the students out here, uh, here and with their solidarity and their you know, fight for the climate, so yeah, it's good to see you.
4: I I'm Meredith Williams, I live in Western Sydney, and I'm a minister in the Uniting Church. I'm also a member of ARC, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, and as part of both
6: organisations, uh, I'm committed to supporting young people in any action towards stronger uh, stronger targets, stronger movement uh, for, uh,
4: for addressing the climate crisis and global warming. I feel very deeply,
5: strongly about this as a Christian, and I think that we need to do a lot more in this country to combat climate change to uh, pick up our own game and to leave a better legacy for younger people, uh, people who are struggling, people who are vulnerable, our Pacific Island nations and all those on the front line of climate change.
6: I'm Alex Duggan, I'm a high school student from Morris College North Shore and I'm here today striking for climate action. There are currently 118 new coal and gas projects on the books set to be completed. There's the Pilgrim gas project done by Santos that will poison Aboriginal water supplies. But there's countless other coal and oil and gas projects that will continue to make our planet worse that are currently here in Australia. The Labour and Liberal governments have made the situation climate worse. Labour got elected on a platform of ending the climate wars. Well, they've ended it, and they've ended it on the side of the fossil fuel people. They've continued to approve new projects, all under the cover of pretending to do things with fake carbon credits that do not work to address the root causes of climate change, so I'm here today to put pressure on them to stop climate change and to stop exports and new coal and gas projects. Hi, my name's Alexa
0: and I'm
7: here joining the Sydney School Strike for Climate because I'm terrified about my future and I'm sick and tired of our government not doing enough. This is just the beginning for young people all across the country and then. Weekend in Newcastle. We're going to be blockading the world's largest coal port for 30 hours. We're going to be stopping half a million tons of coal from moving through the Newcastle coal port. And it's going to be a massive weekend that is set to be the largest direct action for climate
6: My name is Hugh I'm here to support the young people today in their courts for greater climate action 2023 is shaping up to be the hottest year humans have ever experienced on this planet and things are going to get worse from here unless we start to take decisive action I'm also going to be attending the people's blockade in Newcastle next week please come along
1: thanks to Brian Mahoney for that report from the Sydney school strike for climate on Friday Marches also went ahead in Perth, Adelaide, Sydney, Taree, Noosa Brisbane, and a very, very windy Byron Bay. Where the community newsroom's Mia Armitage from Bay FM spoke with the local strike organiser, Alani Field, who explained her motivation for getting involved.
5: I just really wanted to do something, like I felt so powerless and that there was just all these horrible things going on and like no one was doing anything really or at least in australia it seemed like like they were saying they were gonna do all this stuff and then nine new fossil fuel projects were opened like are you crazy what's wrong like we need to open our eyes and wake up actually take action And you're talking there about the change in government, so you must have had a sense of hope that turned to disappointment, is that what you mean, when the the Labor came in federally Mm. last year? Yeah, definitely. The climate election, they said, promised all these things, net zero by 2030, but still, opening fossil fuels projects doesn't make sense, like that's not taking action to reach zero net emissions. The hashtag is shift the power um, and it's in every sense of the word shift the power to the people and shift the power from fossil fuels to renewable energies. So this morning I can't count I don't know if you can but it seems to me probably fewer than a thousand would you agree yeah, with that if yeah. turned out? Definitely it's smaller than the past years it's been a long time since it's been popular but I think that's why it's more important than ever to bring it back up because it's almost like people are giving up but that's not true we
2: we care. My name is Dr Pabai. I'm from the Torres Strait, located in the northern part of Australia. I'm standing here to challenge the government and our communities that are sinking. It's a betterment for the livelihood of our young generation to come. Because we are the people of our own rights against the climate cases, justice. That's what we need. I'm very strongly standing here to the Australian, to the world, to the Pacific brothers and sisters, to be with us, to fighting this climate change action against the justice to the government. I'm a proud people of the Torres Strait people, standing in front of all the people around the world, saying this, let's do this together. Thank you very much.
1: That was Uncle Pabai, one of the plaintiffs in the Australian climate case, addressing the school strike for climate in Nam, Melbourne, on Friday. Last week, hearings for the landmark Australian climate case resumed at the Australian Federal Court in Nam, Melbourne. The court is hearing from leading climate science experts on the impacts of climate change and sea level rise experienced in the Torres Strait. The court must also address Australia's contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions. Plaintiffs Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul... Traditional owners from the Torres Strait Islands have made the journey to Melbourne to hear more about the science behind the climate harms experienced by their communities. I'll be speaking to Isabel Reinecke, the Executive Director of the Grata Fund, who is supporting Uncle Paul and Uncle Pabai in their legal case with the Australian Government, seeking that they obey their duty of care. Isabel, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything today.
8: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You're working hard on the, uh, the Australian climate case, so what is that legal fight briefly? What's, what, what are they fighting for and against?
8: Yeah, so the uncles are basically arguing in court that the Australian government has been negligent um, and that they need to take steps to stop causing climate harm in the Torres Strait. Um, And so what they're basically doing is asking the court to find that the government has a duty of care to them and to all people in the Torres Strait Islands. um, And they need to take steps to reduce climate harms. And what that really means is reduce emissions in line with the best available science and commit to adaptation measures in the Torres Strait that will actually give people a good, lasting quality of life in the Torres Strait as climate impacts worsen up there.
1: Hmm. And and it seems that this duty of care argument is uh, one which has been uh, been being used a fair bit around Australia. I think uh, David Pocock, uh, independent senator Pocock, is helping sponsor a uh, a bill on the duty of care. Uh, that the uh, uh, that there are, there have been former legal cases where the uh, the where, where uh, young people going and and demanding that duty of care be applied to them. Uh, and uh, to 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 have having been successful and then being uh, turn, overturned on appeal and there's also a strong international precedent now for this kind of case can you talk us through about that legal context
8: yeah absolutely so the the basic idea is following the very successful and really probably most ever, ever successful global climate litigation case in the world which was in the netherlands which the court there found that the Dutch government had a duty of care to its citizens and had to reduce emissions in line with the science that was back in 2015. And they won several times on appeal as well. Um, And since then organizations and and people around the world have sort of looked at how could we also enforce the duty of care against our governments? And, you know, we all, as people and citizens tend to think, well, you know, there is a duty of care, whether the court says so or not, there's sort of moral duty of care. But if you can establish a legal duty of care, you can also establish legal accountability for the actions of governments, which is massive. Um, And Sharma, who was the young woman who brought that previous case in Australia, was seeking for there to be a duty of care in legislation where the environmental minister had to consider, you know, the young people of Australia's future when making em- environmental decisions around, for example, new mines. Um, and she won at first instance, but yes, lost on an appeal um, and is now fighting in Parliament because really the court said to her in that case, look, you know, we agree with you, but this is a job for Parliament. And so she's gone to Parliament and is working with Dave Pocock and she's also working with um, Chelsea from Uncle Paul's Island, Cyber, who's kind of really representing Torres young people as part of that process as well and saying to the federal government, look, you need to consider young people when you're making environmental decisions under the environmental legislation that we have. Um, And that's a really important next step for Australia. This case is slightly different, though, because it's going back to the idea that was in the Dutch case and really saying the Australian government as a whole is being negligent and the only way that they can stop being negligent is by stop causing by stopping causing climate change harm, which is reducing emissions really by net zero by about 2035. So you know in about 10 years we really need to be at net zero emissions to prevent the most um, horrific impacts of climate change in the Torres Strait. And we're really hopeful that the court will agree that the, that the government has been negligent and that the government actually needs to stop being negligent. It's obviously a complicated case, but it's one that we think there are really good grounds to succeed.
1: It doesn't seem like too big an ask to ask the government not to be negligent about uh, their duty of care <laughs> for the future of its citizens, does it? But, uh, you know, you, you've got a, a long list of, uh, of eminent uh, expert witnesses uh, coming before the court and you've been in hearings, I, I believe, since, uh, since Monday. Is that right?
8: Monday last week, so it's two weeks yeah. of hearing so far. it'll run right up, I think till the 27th of November is where it's looking at at the moment. Um, and that's right. We've been hearing from people like Professor David Caroli, who's a world leader in atmospheric climate science, former chief scientist of CSIRO. We've been hearing from people like Professor Linda Selvia, health expert, Terry Hughes, a marine biology expert. John Church, sea level rise expert, and then Professor Melton Meinhausen, who's a particularly interesting expert in that he talks about Australia's contribution to global carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions, mm. and really our significant contribution in the global context. Um, there are others as well, um, and it's been really interesting. I think you know the thing that's been quite notable, and the trend that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks of the government's approach in court has been, to be honest, kind of concerning. If you compare it to the previous government, their approach to climate change litigation has, for the last kind of few years of its term at least, been to acknowledge the climate science and concede that in court um, and, and try and win on other kind of legal grounds. Whereas this government, despite holding itself out as sort of ending the climate wars, is really, its council are attempting to undermine the climate science. Really? Um, and it's not going very well for them, though. I mean, it's at one point, Professor Hughes responded to, to the council for, for the government that this is high school level science that he was talking about, um, which was sort of a satisfying thing to listen to, you know, when you have a government trying to undermine the science that we all know is, is well established, to have an expert really explain to them why they were out of line. Um, and really, that'll continue for the next couple of weeks, this detail on climate impacts. Australia's contribution and role in those impacts and as Professor David Crowley told the court the fact that Australia is a significant contributor to global efforts to keep global warming to as close to 1.5 degrees as possible to really avert the destruction of Torres Strait Islander communities.
1: Yes so um uh, that sounds like you know a fascinating process we'd have to keep abreast of. But uh, you say the tide is turning. You say that uh, as as more courts are asked to hear these cases, we're seeing the beginnings of a wave wave of legal decisions. Uh, do, do, are you feeling hopeful?
8: Yeah, look, I am, and I think it's a matter of time when it comes to climate change and accountability. The courts are really well positioned to get to the truth about Australia's climate action because they're designed to focus on facts and not political spin. Um, But also the science on climate change is just so well established that there's nowhere really left for the government to hide. I think over time, courts are going to catch up with the detail of the facts of climate science and it ultimately will lead to a conclusion that it's untenable for there not to be accountability for the harm that's being caused. Mm. So I'm hopeful that that accountability will come in this case. Um, but if it doesn't, it really is a matter of time till, till regulation and, and the law uh, catches up with governments
1: because it is actually uh, like a fundamental tenet of democracy, isn't it this separation of powers and the and the, and the, the responsibility of the judiciary to uh, to interpret the law in line with community standards and current circumstances. so so this is actually like these kinds of court actions are a kind of an essential okay. element of uh, of bringing democracy up to date and keeping and keeping the government in check, aren't they?
8: Yeah, I mean, that's why we have courts in the first place. We don't have courts in the first place to settle divorces and to send people to jail. We have courts in the first place to be able to hold, enable us as as citizens of Australia to hold our government accountable. That's why they're in the constitution to start with. And that's just fundamentally part of their, their role. But, you know, the thing that they really have to look at are the kind of key legal principles. So things like we have this principle in our society that you cannot be negligent to somebody and Mm. cause harm and that go unremedied. Um, And we also have facts in the the case of climate science, really egregious and clear facts that the Australian government is causing significant harm. Um, And so really it's for the court to decide, okay, has has the climate facts gotten to the point that they really start to breach the legal principles that we have all kind of come to depend on? Um, and that's why I say I think you know it's a, it's a matter of time for climate accountability to come for major polluters like Australia um, through through the court system. You know we we change hearts and minds and we bring people along the journey to understand climate impacts and how it's affecting their lives. But at the end of the day, you know we really need to use the legal system that you know invisibly dictates much of our lives um, to make sure that it is also holding holding the powerful accountable.
0: Mm.
1: Well, yes, uh, that's that sounds uh, like a, a good a good process to be un, uh, to be engaged with. How how can the the, the community in general? What, what would you be asking for listeners to do in order to engage uh, with the, this case and uh, and others like it?
8: Um, look, really, it's about standing in solidarity with the uncles and their communities. You can check out their story at theaustralianclimatecase.org.au, dot um, org dot Follow along their journey on social media on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and what you can also do is actually share your story of climate impact. So if you've noticed, as I know many of the many of the listeners to this program will have climate impacts in their own backyards, you can actually share that story online with the uncles. And what will then be done is the uncles will present that information to the government um, outside of court to say, look, this isn't even just about the Torres Strait. This is happening to people all over the country um, and you really need to start listening to us. So, you know, if you want to stand in solidarity with the uncles, that's that's the way to go about it.
1: Hmm. Well, fantastic. I'm sure that listeners will do that. We, of course, will share uh, and have shared uh, the, the posts uh, on this case uh, to the Environmental as Anything Facebook page and we will continue to do so. Um, we actually, on on a slightly uh, uh, tangential but related point, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you if you had any uh, thoughts on the uh, the recent uh, announcement by Anthony Albanese at the Pacific Islands Forum about the Tuvalu uh, immigration agreement that they've struck for climate, uh, well, essentially climate refugees.
8: To be honest with you, I really feel that this is more greenwashing from the Albanese government. It's pretty unfortunate. We we see the government say one thing and do another. I just think it's deeply ironic that the government would offer, you know, safe haven to Tuvaluans who are losing their homelands because of Australian government actions. And at the same time they are fighting their own citizens in court who are facing the exact same future. You know, people in the Torres Strait are facing becoming Australia's some of Australia's first climate refugees. Um, that's a terrible thing and, and for the government to kind of I think, really act as if it's it's being this very generous, gracious um, country by letting Tuvaluans live here while at the same time actually directly causing the harm that they're fleeing from, I think is is pretty terrible.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Isabel, I know we, we said uh, we'd only have 10 minutes and we've gone over time. So um, I think <laughs> we've covered the, the issues at, at, at stake. I really appreciate you uh, your, your, the work you're doing and uh, for you coming and joining us here on Environmental. Is anything to share it with, uh, with the rest of our listeners? Thanks so much for having me. That was Isabel Reinecke, the Executive Director of the Grata Fund, who is providing legal support to the Torres Strait Islander traditional owners who are taking the Australian Government to court in what is being called the Australian Climate Case and demanding that they end their negligence and start obeying their duty of care regarding the climate emergency. Thanks for tuning in to Environmental as Anything.
2: Trade. Because our islands are sinking so we here to pass our message to the world and to the government and we stand in solidarity with everyone so we to pass our voice so government can listen so that i'm saying what are we here for when do we want thank you
1: that was uncle paul one of the two torres strait islander plaintiffs in the Australian climate case, speaking to an enthusiastic crowd at the School Strike for Climate in Melbourne on Friday. Thanks for tuning in to Environmental as Anything. Our next guest on Environmental as Anything is Dr. Tamara Wood. A visiting fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law and a Netheim Doctoral Teaching Fellow at University of New South Wales Law. Dr. Wood researches the fields of international refugee law, regional refugee law, free movement agreement, complementary pathways to protection and displacement in the context of natural hazards, disasters, and climate change. She has published widely in these areas. We will be discussing the announcement this week of an Australia Tuvalu Treaty, which is being called Groundbreaking, under which Australia will provide migration pathways for people from Tuvalu facing the existential threat of climate emergency. This is being called the world's first bilateral agreement on climate mobility. Tamara, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything today. Thanks, Sean. So this existential threat of climate change uh, has, has prompted this uh, world's first bilateral agreement on climate mobility uh, here. That sounds like it's quite uh, significant.
9: It is significant. So Australia has agreed to offer, I think it's 280 places per year, through um, so to Tuvaluans to move to Australia, presumably on a permanent basis, to live and work and, and study and, and do all of those things. It's significant because Tuvalu, of course, is one of the countries right at the front line of climate change and the communities there will be um, some of the most impacted by the adverse impacts of climate change. And the Kaldor Centre, as well as many others, have been calling for countries like Australia um, to do more to provide opportunities for um, those communities to find solutions to that issue. Right. Um, so, you know, certainly migrating to Australia is not the only solution, and it's certainly not the preferred solution of my, most Tuvaluans, but is a, in the sense of providing opportunities um, and choice to those who are most impacted, it is really significant. Right. Um, and to our knowledge, it is the first uh, bilateral agreement, certainly in the Pacific, that has been framed particularly as a measure to address climate change-related movement.
1: Mm. Um, Climate change has been top of mind on the uh, Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, do you think this is uh, a precedent that might uh, extend to other Pacific Islands nations?
9: I think it could, and it's probably important to understand the Australian Tuvalu arrangement in the context um, also of the newly adopted Pacific Regional Framework on Climate Mobility. So um, it has not had quite as much attention as the Australia Tuvalu deal, but it's a, um, a framework that's been endorsed by Pacific Islands Forum leaders um, just last week that deals with, you know, lots of different aspects of climate mobility. So not only um, providing migration pathways, but also regional collaboration on other issues related to climate mobility. So helping people to stay um, in place where that's where they want to to do, helping to ensure that communities are consulted um, when developing solutions to climate mobility. So, yes, this is one example of bilateral cooperation. Um, You know, there are and will be many others um, addressing not only, you know, movement, but all the other... Um, aspects of of climate mobility as well.
1: Hmm. I've heard commentary uh, around the Pacific Islands Forum about the idea that uh, you know there could be some movement towards a Pacific uh, Union similar to the uh, European Union, uh, which would allow uh, these kinds of things more broadly. Is that is that something which is gathering momentum?
9: Look, I think it's one of those issues where all opportunities are being explored. You know, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem, and that's for lots of different reasons. You know, the impacts of climate change will be felt differently by different communities and different countries. Um, the the wishes and desires of different communities, individuals, families will be different as well. So, you know, exploring how free movement agreements can be developed and, and improved or implemented in a way that is particularly relevant as climate change impacts are increasingly felt, is certainly one option. But again, it's, it, it's the, you know, the priority of most Pacific Islanders is to stay in place. And what we wouldn't want to see is solutions um, for that facilitate movement, overtake, or subsume some of the um, bigger priorities for Pacific Islanders, which is, you know, mitigation of greenhouse gases and support to stay in their homes.
1: Yes, so that seems to me to reflect on. I mean, like I know we spoke off air, and you said you're not expert enough to discuss in detail the uh, Australian climate case, which is before the courts. But uh, clearly, that is the case in which uh, the, the uh, Torres Strait Islanders are calling for the Australian government to, you know, uh, honour its duty of care to prevent the climate emergency from getting worse. Is uh, is that uh, likely to be? Is it you know is that likely to be something that the Australian government's g- going to Uh, to to take serious, more seriously now after the Pacific Islands Forum and this Tuvalu decision?
9: Look, let's hope so. Certainly, um, you know, many Pacific Island civil society groups have been quite vocal in um, calling on the Australian government not to just provide what might be a Band-Aid solution in terms of migration pathways, but to take more seriously efforts um, to mitigate climate change impacts in the first place. Um, and, you know, Pacific Islanders are, you know, wonderfully skilled at protecting and defending um, their their culture and their heritage. And so I think, you know, if Australia is to be a good Pacific neighbour, it will take just as seriously those obligations as it does its obligations to, to help people who are already impacted or are impacted in the future. Yes, it is the case that some people will... Um, choose to move or will be compelled to move as a result of climate change but there's a lot more to be done about that than simply providing you know visas for some of those people to come to australia mm. um, and in that context um, the caldor center is today in fact releasing um, a set of 13 key principles on climate mobility that can be used to guide governments and other stakeholders so affected communities civil society groups um, and so on in thinking broadly about how to come at this issue so those principles are very holistic, very comprehensive. There are 13 principles in total. Each of them has, you know, a number of key priorities and potential actions that people can take. So, you know, whether you're a, a government official or, a, you know, an administrative um, officer or a civil society representative, there will be um, tools in there that you can draw upon to to make change in this area. And, you um, as I said, they very much go together, you know, those principles will address different types of mobility. So they do have recommendations around creating migration pathways, about ensuring people's human rights are protected, but equally they have principles um, around ensuring that communities are genuinely consulted and involved in making these decisions, that sustainable financing is available and that the, you know, all of these endeavours are undertaken with a justice perspective, you know, recognising that many of the communities particularly in the pacific that are really at the front line of climate change have contributed the least um, to it um, and that that must be an overarching principle also
1: well thank you for that and uh, you know we we'll look forward to seeing the uh, the release of that uh, principles on climate mobility framework and thank you for your time today we really appreciate you uh, talking to as anything
9: it's a pleasure thanks sean
1: that was dr tamara wood a researcher in the fields of international refugee law in the context of displacement due to natural hazards such as climate change. Discussing Australia's offer of climate migration to Tuvalu residents as a potentially groundbreaking lifeline across the Pacific. <laughs> Okay, Violet Coco, welcome to Environmental as Anything with the Coco Report. Thank you for joining Uh, us.
7: Thanks for having me, Sean. It's such a pleasure to be back on Environmental as Anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a big week this week. It's been a big week. We have the school strikers going on.
1: It's been amazing.
7: Yeah. I've always loved seeing the kids go. I was there at the rally in Gadigal Country, Sydney, uh, yesterday. And, you know, the school strikers always have the best Speakers, I just find that they have a, a super diverse range of, you know, the the frontline people. Uh, they had Wiradjuri people. They had uh, people from um, the Gomeroi. Um, they had First Nations Pacific. It was it was just a really really incredible speeches. And the first thing they did was they said, we're not going to do speeches first. We're going to do disruption first because that's where our power lies. <laughs> and so they, they hit the streets and did a march before any speeches, which is really fantastic. I was really impressed with them.
1: They are not just passionate, they're smart and they're committed. It's uh, it's very exciting. There was a, a great mob turned out here in Byron Bay. I've seen uh, terrific footage from the, the rally and, and, and uh, the speeches in Sydney. And, uh, yeah, always awesome. Oh,
7: it was so fun. And I brought my megaphone along and I was sort of, You know, I started a few chairs and then I was getting them to start the chairs. It was a bit of like passing on the torch. It was really, it was, uh, it's really good to, to get hit the streets with the kids. On you. And it was a, it was a really it was soothing after such terrible news with David over the weekend yes. over the week rather. Did you did you hear what happened with David McBride?
1: Oh yes, it's it's awful. We're uh, we're going to try and cover some of that later uh, in, in today's show. Uh, it, uh, yes. Yeah, he he ended up uh, deciding that it was uh, the only thing to do was to plead guilty after having been denied his uh, his defence.
7: Well, that's right. So the uh, the Attorney General came in and basically wiped clean his um, all of his evidence, so that he couldn't present it to the court. So normally, there's a division of the judiciary and the executive and the parliament, but the Attorney General has this special power to just like remove evidence in the judiciary, and and obviously that is just like a massive overreach, and that caused the collapse of his case in proving that he has you know a duty to the people first. Rather than a duty to follow orders first, so he, it looks like he will face prison for exposing war crimes. It'll be the first to face prison uh, of exposing those uh, 30, or almost 40 war crimes. I think it's 36. Uh, 39, numbers. I think it was. 39. There you go. Um, so yeah, it's just um, he's on bail. Bail now until after Christmas. But yeah, I, I was in uh, wall Country, Canberra, and. Um, and was, you know, sitting in the courtroom and I, I shared a meal with him the night before and uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's holding really strong um, because he knows that, you know, he's in the right and that he's fighting for truth and justice and he's hoping that the Australian people will rally behind him and I believe they will.
1: Mm-hmm. I think as people yeah. learn about his story, they're outraged by the, the details, but uh, yes, yeah, so We'll have to cover that on an ongoing basis uh, because uh, that's that's a genuine heroic story.
7: It really is. It really is. And I'm just, I'm glad that he's going to be with his family over Christmas. He's got a beautiful granddaughter, picture of her up on his Twitter page, David McBride. I definitely recommend people check it out with her holding his book. I think she looks about six, so I'm not sure he's going to, she's going to be able to read his book just about yet, but uh, she definitely is getting one for Christmas. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's,
1: it's no bedtime story for a six-year-old, is it?
7: <laughs> Definitely but, not. Not war crimes, no.
1: Yeah, he's a good Speaking man. Speaking of
7: war crimes, um, just to keep us moving forward, yes, um, we've still got the Palestinian um, solidarity rallies happening all around the country all week, every weekend. And in Naam, there's a blockade of the port going on. Um, there's a, a really brave uh, human, Riyadh, who's on hunger strike. Um, he'll probably be on day eight now. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they're calling out for solidarity there for people to get down to the port. So if your re- listeners, readers, I was going to call them, if your listeners are, are as far-reaching as Nam Melbourne, uh, please go down to the port and support Riyadh. If not, um, check in with your local uh, Palestine uh, support group to be able to find out where your local rallies are because uh yeah there's a of this genocide happening over there and um uh, and we need to be standing in solidarity and calling for a ceasefire
1: indeed indeed so uh what else uh what about what's, what's upcoming what do we got happening What's
7: upcoming i i like the upcoming because we have one of the most exciting months in frontline activism in the next few weeks
1: it's the most exciting um, month i can remember
7: in, since yeah, since Pre COVID days. Everybody's hit the ground running and generated a huge momentum for the for the warm season before the silly season. Uh so we no so we have rising tide next weekend from the twenty fourth to the twenty sixth in Newcastle. Do you know what Newcastle's uh real name is? I I it always flips my mind.
1: No, I'm sorry. All right, I'm a well bit that is from a there. job
7: for all of us. That's a job for all of us. <laughs> um, anyway, I think it starts with like a W. So rising tide, 24th to the 26th, it's the world's largest coal port. So Australia is uh, responsible for the – it's the third largest exporter of carbon emissions. So it's um, Russia, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, and then Australia.
1: Great company yeah. to be in.
7: Yeah. And so, um, and so it's, I think it's really important that we're there and, and exposing the crimes of this port. And, and basically we're going to do a paddle out, got your kayak, I'm really excited to paddle out with you, Sean. We're cool. going to go doubles.
1: Yes, indeed.
7: Yes, um, and then and then the week after that, we've got COP, so um, the international gathering um, of the world's leaders and fossil fuel executives, it seems, um, or lobbyists at least, uh, coming together uh, and deciding how to continue to lie to us about the trajectory of our reduction of emissions. Uh, and so all around the globe, there is solidarity protests uh, calling out the COP for being a COP out. Mm. Um, so the, the, uh, the coalition that's built um, is happening in Gadigal country in Sydney, uh, which is just two hours south of, uh, of the rising tide. So if you're at rising tide, you can just tottle on down um, to the 30th to the 3rd. Uh, we've got the COP out. And then, uh, and then uh, after that, um, in now in Melbourne, um, we've got the December Rebellion, which is part of Extinction Rebellion's rising uh, uprising. And basically, that's from the fifth to the tenth. Um, there's 300 people going to sit on the road on Saturday the ninth and refuse to move. It's going to be a massive display of resistance, and I'm I'm so excited to be a part of that one.
1: Absolutely, no. That's uh, that. That seems like a, a perfectly uh, sensible trajectory to be on uh, from uh, from rising tide to the uh, uh, to the extinct to the to the rebellion in Melbourne. It's a uh, nah, yeah.
7: yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a, a really incredible few weeks, and I'm just really excited to see the resistance playing out that that we sort of lost um, over the COVID times, and finally we can gather again, and we're just seeing these mass displays of resistance, which. Yeah, I think is absolutely appropriate for the, the final hour. Um, Peter Carter came out with a new video uh, talking about the collapse of our habitable planet recently, and how urgent we need to engage in um, in pulling the three levers of reducing our emissions to zero, repairing our ecosystems, and um, and uh, and doing research on how to restore. Uh, the Antarctic uh, ice sheets, and so yeah, I think that uh, it's a really, really important time to be engaging in the climate. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no anything without a healthy planet to live on. So uh, no. yeah,
1: there's no time like now, and there's no one to do it but us. So uh, that's... that's
7: right. If not you, then who? If and not if... now, then when? That's right.
1: That's right. That's How many more...
7: memes can we fit in the last few minutes, Sean? <laughs> <laughs>
1: We'll have a meme-off. Maybe we should have a meme-off another day. uh, It's early in the morning. We are pre-recording this at at Sparrow's Fart.
7: I'm about to get on a train. That's why I'm coming up to Lismore for the weekend.
1: Yay! All right. Back home again, briefly.
7: Back home again, because it's your birthday tomorrow. Now I get to call you out. So um, I'm coming up and I'm really looking forward to celebrating your birthday. And I really appreciate the chance to come on and talk to environmentalists anything about what's happening on the front line.
1: Good on you, Violet. Have a great trip on the train. I'm looking forward to seeing you. It's all going to be very exciting. And uh, hopefully uh, everybody out there will be joining us uh, on those front lines with us.
7: Yes, I think they will. After this report, how could they not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Travel safe. I'm sure.
7: Thank you. Bye. Sean. Bye. Nah
1: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Environmental As Anything podcast. Uh, I'll be bringing them to you as regularly as I can. If you'd like to tune into more of this kind of uh, material, uh, there's plenty of episodes available. You can subscribe to our podcast and while you're there, you might as well rate it and help uh, spread the word by sharing it on social media if you can. We're on social media, of course, on Facebook particularly. You can find us anywhere you look for Environmental As Anything. And if you're really keen to see the show, carry on, please do go and support us on Patreon. Again, you can find us by just searching Environmental As Anything Patreon. Thank you for your support. Be gentle with yourselves. Be kind to each other. And remember, we are all in this together. (laughs)